This is the Read, Write, and Create podcast, the podcast where you get a bite-sized session of creative writing coaching from me, Lori L. Tharps. I'm an award-winning author of both fiction and nonfiction, a journalist, and a former college professor. I've spent more than 20 years writing, teaching, and coaching creative writers, so I created this podcast because I want to help as many BIPOC writers as possible get their stories out of their heads and into the world. Are you ready? Let's go. On episode 22 of the podcast, my guest is Evie Zavoy. Evie is the New York Times bestselling author of the YA novel American Street, which among other distinctions was a National Book Award finalist. An incredibly multi-talented and diverse author, Evie also penned the novel Pride, which is a contemporary remix of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice and the middle grade novel My Life as an Ice Cream Sandwich. She is the editor of the anthology Black Enough, Stories of Being Young and Black in America. She also co-authored the Walter Award and LA Times Book Prize winning novel and verse Punching the Air, written with exonerated five member Yusuf Salam. She's written a picture book, The People Remember, which received a Coretta Scott King Honor Award. And her most recent books include Star Child, a biographical constellation of Octavia Estelle Butler, Okoye to the People, which is a Black Panther novel for Marvel, and her latest novel, which I personally just finished reading, called Nigeria Jones. Ebi lives in New Jersey with her husband and their three teenage children. On this episode, Ebi shares her unique journey to publishing success, as well as the sacrifices and compromises she's had to make in order to get her foot in the door of the mainstream publishing industry. She shares candidly the real origin story of her debut novel, American Street, and how the new movie, American Fiction, perfectly exemplifies the decisions she's had to make as a Black writer in America. Talking to Evie felt like talking to an old friend, even though we've never officially met in person. But her honesty and enthusiasm for the craft of writing and storytelling was so wonderful to hear. And her practical approach to publishing should be noted for those of you listening who want to make a career as a fiction writer. Lots of gems and useful advice in this interview, so let's get to it. Welcome to the Read, Write, and Create podcast, Evie Zaboy. Thank you so much for having me, Lori. Well, it is an absolute pleasure. And um, before we get started, I just want to let everybody listening know that I really wanted to have you on the show. You're the last guest of the season because I am a huge fan of your work ever since reading American Street. I always tell people that American Street was the book that I read that made me realize that even as a woman of a certain age, I could still enjoy YA literature. I feel like Everybody had gotten into YA. I don't even know what were the books at the time when American Street came out, but I was like, oh no, I've outgrown YA. Then I read American Street and was like, oh my gosh, this was such a good book. So I assume that our conversation would really be just kind of about what's it like to be a YA author? You know, how do you find success in this genre? But then I started doing more research on your career, and I was like, wait a second. This woman has so much more to share than just what's it like to be a YA author. And I think that so many of your parts of your journey in becoming, quote unquote, an author really would be inspirational to our audience because your path has been I'll just say unique. Everybody's path is unique, but your path is unique in that I think with all of the other authors that I've brought on here, I don't think a lot of them have had a similar kind of 
entree into the publishing world like you had. So there was a quote that I heard you say on another podcast. You said, quote, my publishing journey is not my personal journey as a writer. And I thought that was so profound in some ways and also instructive for writers who are trying to make a living with their writing because there's not just one way to make it. So I want to spend this interview time together talking about your unique journey and why it is, in fact, different from your personal writing journey and how it can be instructive for writers to see what's possible when they say yes to different types of opportunities. So to set the stage, can you talk a little bit about your love for spoken word poetry and how that became your kind of entree into getting your writing out into the world? And let me tell you that I spent many a nights at the New York and Poets Cafe in New York City. So whatever you're going to tell us, I'm already excited. Thank you so much for just getting to know me before asking questions. It kind of lays the groundwork for, you know, I personally want to do a deep dive with you because I do not often get to have these conversations with other Black women writers so we can get the basic one-on-one stuff out of the way. And thank you so much for starting with my spoken word journey because it is the foundation for me becoming a writer. I cannot say that I've read books and said, I want to do that. I want to go into publishing. I want to get an agent and I want to get an editor. It started out with finding my voice, literally. And spoken word requires you to write the thing and then perform the thing. So it's a whole nother kind of experience because you get immediate feedback. And the first few times I stepped onto a stage and read my poetry. I didn't read it. I performed it because I was mimicking what I already saw. And I got a standing ovation. I got applause. And that is so incredibly validating. I actually won a few open mic nights. There was one that I particularly remember because it let me know what kind of writer I was. There was one uh, slam poetry. It was, I believe, the African Poetry Theater in Queens. And they had one award that was literary. And the other one was performance. And I was like, that's genius because we're all not going to be actors on the stage. We're not always going to be using our bodies and making facial expressions. And some poets are really good at that. But I performed my poetry just standing still. And I had wordplay. I had metaphors. I had beautiful language. It's kind of like if you've ever seen Jill Scott perform. And she's an R&B singer and she stays in one spot and just her presence alone takes up the whole stage. I'm not saying I did that, but I wanted my words to speak for itself. So that let me know then that I was a writer and I was a literary writer and I pursued that. That's so interesting because I actually just led a writing retreat and we were doing exercises to unleash our creativity. And we use poetry to do that. I always tell my writers, poetry is like a free write. You don't have to do anything but play with your words. And I think that reading poetry, you know, we're often told, just read poetry to infuse your writing with more poetic language, for example. But I've never heard somebody talk about spoken word poetry as this way to get immediate feedback for your writing. 
like what an awesome validation that your words move people. <laughs> I think nowadays people say, oh, go on social media for immediate validation of your work. You could get some response or write a blog post, you know, because you have that immediacy. But it's not the same thing. They're not responding to your words, to your voice, to this message of your words. So I love that. So I know that what you fell in love with and the types of writing that you were doing trended into speculative fiction, fantasy, sci-fi. Can you talk a little bit about how that came out of spoken word poetry? Like, how were those two things connected for you? I did spoken word in the late 90s. And there was a certain kind of theme amongst all the poets. And I want to credit Saul Williams for that theme, where the poetry was... Sci-fi. It was sci-fi poetry. It was intergalactic. It was tall tales. It was the hero's journey. And it was about space travel and time travel. And those were the poems that moved me the most. So I tried my hand at it. Those were not the first poems. The first poem I remember just getting a lot of applause for was about my body. And my ass in particular. I'm a curvy lady and I was curvy 20 years ago. (laughs) And the refrain was my ass, you know, and I would say it in a certain way was provocative, but I flipped it and said my mind. Right. And it was just me as a college kid just commenting on the male gaze and being admired for my intellect over my body. But the more I heard these other kinds of poems, I embanded that sort of commentary and embraced this idea of, wow, in my words and in my poetry, I can, you know, traverse the universe. I can contemplate the universe. And I remember reading for the first time Nikki Giovanni's Ego Tripping. And if you've seen it on the page or heard her read it, I remember A Different World had the character's performance, and it starts with, I was born on the Congo. And we did that as poets in the late 90s. We did that. We build on that tradition of the tall tale and this sort of boast poetry. And this is where sci-fi was born. This was where, for me, I started to infuse Egyptology because I was learning about it. A lot of other poets were infusing African spirituality and mythology into their poetry and talking about Oshun and Oya, I am Shango, you know, and it was so incredibly empowering to just immerse ourselves, not only in the oral tradition, but in the mythology. And this is the sort of thing that was is not documented. We didn't know that young people were creating this sort of dynamic in New York City in the late 90s. And it was, you know, for I'd never got on the stage at New Yorkian, but it was Brooklyn Moon in Brooklyn. There was something called a tea party in downtown Manhattan. All these hole-in-the-wall spaces. Nobody was coming to document us at the African Poetry Theater in Queens. It really was a moment. And I believe there was one person by the name of Pierre Benou who had some footage. But we didn't have our phones there and nobody was recording. So it's one of those things that you will never know unless you were there. And there's so much of our story that is not documented. But yes, 
this is where I, when I was introduced to Octavia Butler, in order to write your best poems, in order to perform your best self and use wordplay and just make connections to literature and life and art, you had to be a reader. And these poets were readers, were avid readers. I remember I had one of my little boyfriends who would take me to Forbidden Planet in New York City, which is a huge comic book store over there in Union Square. And he was a comic book reader. And, you know, that introduced me to Black Panther, uh, the comic, in the late 90s, because these spoken word poets were nerds. It was just a whole bunch of well-read, artsy Black nerds who wore their hair natural and wore an Egyptian musk and carried around incense and, you know, and wore Afrocentricity with pride. But they were also well-read, and those people knew who Octavia Butler was and and knew Wildseed and Kindred. And at that time, Parable of the Sower had just come out. So all of that introduced me to a world where alternative Blackness was celebrated. And this is where I became a writer because these people were writers and artists and dancers and singers in an alternative space. So this is where my writing self was cultivated. That is so fascinating. And I'm feeling you writing a new book about that time period because that's just like the connection between maybe Black nerd culture, Afrofuturism, and poetry. I don't feel like that time period, like that's a whole movement that I learned by reading about you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'm hearing about it through you. So I think you know more people need to understand that there was a time period where these connections, maybe a lot of people do know about it, but I do think it would be an interesting story to tell, document in some way. But you mentioned Octavia Butler. I know you have this incredible connection with Octavia Butler. Can you tell our listeners the story of how you met her? I think that's just brilliant and badass that you're like, I'm just going to call her up, right? Tell us about how you actually met her and then the nature of your relationship moving forward including Star Child, if you, we're going to jump backwards and forwards a little bit, but I think that your relationship with Octavia Butler is so kind of fundamental to your writing journey, the beginning of it, that I think we should hear about that from the beginning. I want to step back for a little bit. Do you mind if I bring you into this? No. <laughs> okay. Meaning, I remember you had a book with someone, Ayana Bird. Yes. Hair story or hair? Yes, hair story. Was it the late 90s? It was the late 90s, right? It came out in 2001. Yes, exactly. I feel like you were part of, I remember that. And I remember the photo of you. And you both had locks. And it looked like, while you you may or may not be in the spoken word scene, but there was an aesthetic during that time, right? If it came out in 2001, you were probably working on it in 99, 2000, or what have you. Absolutely. And I felt like I saw, like, Honey Magazine was a thing, too, you know? And it wasn't just like we were a tiny community in Brooklyn or New York City. It was an overall aesthetic that kind of filtered out to media, and we started seeing ourselves reflected in the magazines and in the books being published. And I could name, like, my poet friends were getting published in Catch a Fire and all of that. And Bum Rush to Page were books that were out at that. And in 
looking for them in the bookstores. I discovered other books too. We had our Afrocentric bookstores in Kuru Books. When I was living with my parents in Queens, the mall had like the regular Walden books. And then there was the Afrocentric bookstore in the other end. And your books were there. And there was like a, a literary, a tiny literary movement. And Octavia Butler's books were there. Edwidge Danty Cat's books were there. And this is where my world collided. And yes, someone, it was a boyfriend who introduced me to Octavia Butler, gave me actually Parable of the Talents in 2000. It had just come out. And I read it and I found out there was a prequel called Parable of Sower. And this is like very, very early internet. Only but to look her up. What does this author look like? Oh my goodness, I love the way they're thinking. This is amazing. I want to do that. So it wasn't any book. It was more like, I want to do what Octavia Butler is doing. And I remember thinking, I want to do like Edwidge Nanticat and Octavia Butler represent me, you know, and what I want to do with my writing. And I found out that Octavia Butler, I share a birthday with Octavia Butler. She's older. (laughs) We were exactly 30 years apart and I felt like a kin spirit and I called her up. I looked her up. (laughs) I don't remember. I think it was the yellow pages. It had to be the yellow pages or, you know, I knew that she lived in, I believe, Sacramento or Pasadena at the time. And she picked up and it was just a brief conversation. I said, hey, I would like to be a writer. Well, you know, you got to read and do workshops. And I don't remember her telling me about Clarion, but I found out about Clarion through a woman named Cherie Renee Thomas, who was teaching at the Frederick Lugless Creative Arts Center in New York. There was a creative arts center that was started by a man named Fred Hudson. By that time, he was an older man. And he started that center, and he always told this story because in the 70s, when Roots came out, it was about to be a movie because it was a book. When Roots the movie was happening, Hollywood was looking for Black script writers, and there were none. They wanted a room full of Black writers to work on Roots, and there were none. And Fred Hudson started the Creative Arts Center to cultivate writers. They needed writers with experience. So in the late 90s, at the very tail end of this hub, I participated in writing workshops. And in Frederick Douglass, they had short story workshops, novel writing workshops, screenwriting workshops. And it was in this building, the top floor. They had enough room to hold these long dining tables that could hold about eight to 10 people. And they hired instructors to come and teach these workshops, instructors with some experience. And we were there. I was there every Friday night and it was so, so inspiring. And this is when I learned more about other writers. And at the same time, I was taking classes at Hunter College and being in their writing department. And it was, I think, a perfect storm of finding my voice, discovery, finding other writers, books being available. And never, never in that moment, in that time, did I look to white writers, right? It was just a little tiny envelope of Black writers. And I knew that Marie Brown was the agent to go to. (laughs) And I worked for a year with the folks who put together the Harlem Book Fair around that time. 
and I met writers. I felt like y'all were there. (laughs) So it was just, this is my foundation. My literary foundation is black writers and they were accessible. Toni Morrison, I went to an event and Toni Morrison was right there. You could touch her. I met Octavia Butler because she was right there at Inkuru Books. And she got into my car because I was like, hey, where are you going? You know, and she was like, going to the city. I was not going to the city. I was going the opposite direction to Queens. And I was like, that'll be on my way. <laughs> I can take you. And there was Octavia Butler in my car. And it sounds people, I say the story now and recently, they're like, oh my goodness, she's since passed away, of course. But at that time, our writers were our writers. They were right there in the community. If you were a young person and you aspired to be a writer, they were not inaccessible. You know, they were not the rock stars that we tend to make them out to be. You know, you wanted to see a certain partic- a particular writer, you could reach out and touch them because they were accessible and they were part of the community. And the way that capitalism worked back then may be a little different from now where their publishers didn't remove them from the community and put them in this like superstar bubble. You know what I mean? So I met Octavia Butler and I studied with her at Clarion because I applied Clarion West Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers Workshop. And I went because Cherie Renee Thomas, who edited the first anthology for African-American speculative fiction, it got published in 2001, I believe. And she had gone to Clarion and she told me I should apply and I applied and it was the most diverse class they'd had with three black women, one of which was Ki'ini Ibora Salam. And that was like the most diverse class they've had. And Butler had attended Clarion 30 years before I had attended. So that's a little bit of my origin story with Octavia Butler. And years later, I published a children's book about her. It was published last year called Star Child, a biographical constellation of Octavia Estelle Butler. And it is just a short biography for young people just to let them know that she was a 10-year-old writing science fiction stories in 1957 when we don't usually see Black girls imagining the world in that way. And she wasn't necessarily fighting the good fight in the civil rights movement. She was imagining magical horses. And Martians. I'm really thinking about what you're saying about writers being accessible. I'm actually in the process of launching a community for BIPOC women writers, a private membership community, you know, just so that you have that support. You know, think of it as like a support group community. But my goal is really to have seasoned authors as well as emerging writers in there because I think that that is so critical. And you just I'm just going to take that clip and maybe put it as the commercial for my community because that's how writers are born, right? And that's how we learn is by learning from our elders. And I've been talking a lot about literary ancestors on this podcast, but we don't need to wait for them to die to learn from them. You know, in fact, it's probably better if we could ask our questions right away. And I think there's also something really useful for people who are of a certain age, like myself, who know that we are passing the torch, sharing lessons learned. I mean, it makes us feel good too. Like, you know, maybe our it was a long time since our last book came out, but to know that we're nurturing the next generation of writers also gives us purpose, right? It brings another level of purpose to our work. So I love that you were able to 
call Octavia Butler just cuz <laughs> and give her a ride to where she needed to go. It does sound amazing today when we are so separated and everybody has to be celebrity. I think like celebrity culture has bled into just about every facet of life. So thank you for sharing that. Now, so it sounds like at this point in your career, you are into speculative fiction, Afrofuturism, fantasy. But your first novel that comes out is American Street, which I would not put in the category of fantasy or speculative fiction. It's a beautiful story. Like I said, it was amazing to me. It drew me in as an older adult, not as a young adult. It was nominated for a National Book Award. I would describe it as a coming-of-age story about a Haitian girl who comes to the United States as a teenager and grapples with that life-changing experience. So can you tell the listeners how the book came to be, how it came into your, as an opportunity, and just talk a little bit about the process of working with a book packager, if that's what you consider alloy books. I'm not sure if that's the proper term. So in order for me to talk about that journey, I'd also have to talk about motherhood and money. <laughs> Which we all love to talk about on this podcast. Because right. <laughs> it's real. real. It's very real. So nine books in now, I can honestly say we've had Black women writers. We've had women writers, of course. But women authorship and motherhood is its own unique experience. And Black motherhood and being an author, I don't know how many of us have really, really talked about that. And the only thing that comes to mind is In Search of Our Mother's Gardens by Alice Walker, a writer in spite of, not despite of, I think she said is a quote from one of her essays. So I became a mother and I got married before I started Clarion in 2000. And I became a mother after I went to Clarion in 2002. And Clarion West is like a big deal if you're a speculative fiction writer. It was a big deal back then. And to study with Octavia Butler, Nello Hopkinson was another author back then. It's something that you put on your little, you know, little cover letter. <laughs> and when we used to send out short story proposals or your novel proposals. Um, so it was a big deal. Nettie Cora Four attended Clarion. There was a Clarion West in Seattle and Clarion in Michigan. And she attended the same summer I did. So you know that that program birthed some powerful writers. And after that, I became a mom. And then I became a mom again and a mom again. So it's about 10 years of full-time mothering and writing and getting some stuff in. I ended up being in uh, Sherry Renee Thomas's second anthology called Dark Matter, Reading the Bones, and a short story I had worked on with Butler at Clarion made it into that anthology. And it's the, you know, it was the sequel to the first one, Dark Matter, a collection of African-American speculative fiction. And it wasn't until 10 years later, 2011, that I decided to really get my feet back in the game. And I attended VONA, Voices of Our Nation's Arts Workshop, which was started by Juno Diaz. And it was just all for writers of color. And again, I'm immersed in this world where I'm around Black and Brown writers. The only exception was Clarion, 
but I had Octavia Butler and the two other women there with me. And I had always been just looking for community in the writing space. And Vona was just that. And I studied, my workshop instructor was Zizi Packer, who has put out um, drinking coffee elsewhere many years ago. And I can honestly say after having done Clarion West 10 years prior, I was not satisfied with the program and I needed more rigor. It was just a good time. We had a good time, but I was just like, I need rigor. I need the depth of analyses and the, the just, I need people to just go in and just tear my story up the same way that we did in Clarion West. But we were very nice to each other. We were very kind. And that's not what I was looking for. And it was in that moment that I realized I need something that more rigorous. And the following year, I started my MFA program in writing for children and young adults. I decided to go into writing for children and young adults because I had read some books that were fantasy and science fiction. Nettie Core Four's first books were for children. And I realized that there is more room for the imagination in children's books. And they're shorter. <laughs> and I had been just reading to my children and looking for books for them at that time, reading picture books. And I love the world of children's literature. And I wanted to explore that world from a speculative fiction space. And I had submitted some of my stories back then. I was like submitting to agents and I was not getting any leeway. I got a lot of positive feedback, but most of it was, we don't know how to market this. And all of them were speculative fiction. I, I wrote a whole novel about some Black fairies who live in the New York City subway system. I was writing a fantasy book based on Haitian voodoo, which is my culture. And there was no space for that at all. And I can't say for a fact that it was my writing. By the time I got to my MFA program, it wasn't about the writing. It was about the concepts having to explain what was intrinsically my culture. Spent two years in the MFA program. I don't regret it. However, it was a very white space and I made it work for me. I did not have to do an MFA. I could have just done workshops, but I internalized this idea that my writing wasn't good enough when it wasn't necessarily about my writing it was about the concepts that I was writing about. And I can honestly say that just going into the workshop and reading other people's work, I'm like, I, I can do this. What is, you know, what's not working here? And it was what I was writing about, the topics that I was writing about. No one knew what to do with the story of the Sukuya or the Lugaru shape-shifting women in Trinidad and Haiti, but they're teenagers, you know, and it's, how are we going to market this? There was no diversity in children's books whatsoever, but there were some people getting published. So 2014 is when I got my first agent and it was because there was a white editor who created a, was it a GoFundMe or Kickstarter to start an imprint for speculative fiction, science fiction and fantasy books of color. And it was two books, TU books, very, very small imprint. But at that time with social media being a thing now when people 
doing live journal and all of that, there were people calling out this lack of diversity in children's books. And I knew some of them. And the other layer to that was the lack of diversity in science fiction and fantasy books for children of color. And my first cover letter for my middle grade fantasy said, and I quote, how come black kids don't do magic? And in books, and I was referring to, we have all these magical abilities, right? We can do magic too. We have the history, we have the culture, but children's and black children's imaginations were not being seen on the page. This was in 2006, 2006 to 2011. I was trying to sell that manuscript. I went to uh, Vona with a speculative fiction manuscript. All my entire MFA program were all speculative fiction uh, stories. My thesis was called Brown Girl in the Ring. And if you're familiar with the Caribbean, it's a song in the Caribbean. There's a brown girl in the ring. Tra-la-la-la. That's a ring game. But the idea of the ring would be magical space for Black girls. So I was writing about Black girl magic before Black girl magic was a thing. And that was my thesis about how Black girls need to be empowered through stories. And they need it the most. So I graduated in 2014. 2015 is when we need diverse books started where there was a Twitter call for We Need Diverse Books. The organization was formed. At that time, I had an agent. There was uh, an editor looking at my speculative fiction manuscript about shape-shifting teenage girls. However, one of my first bylines for the New York Times was reviewing a Haitian children's book called Hold Tight, Don't Let Go, written by a white woman who loves Haiti. She'd lived in Haiti. It was a fine book. And that, it was a book review for the New York Times. And maybe a couple of weeks later, my agent gets an email from Alloy Entertainment. Alloy Entertainment is a book packaging entertainment company where they come up with ideas and get people to write it. They're responsible for The Sisterhood of Traveling Pants, Pretty Little Liars. And at that time, Nicola Yoon, the author, she was their author too with Everything, Everything. And Nicola Yoon's book was immensely popular that year. So I get an email from my agent saying, this is an idea that they have. Are you interested in working on this? And it was about a Haitian girl who moves to Detroit and has three cousins. And I'm like, I don't know about this. I don't trust these corporations, you know, <laughs> and I have my own stuff. And I'm when I saw the the pitch, I rolled my eyes like, you know, whoa, 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 black pain, black pain. And I called a mentor of mine. I called up Edwidge Dante Cat. And I was like, this is happening. What do you think? And she said, well, they will promote your book. They will definitely promote your book. And in hindsight, I think even with Edwidge Danticat, I believe that you can have a great book, but you can still be published, but the marketing won't be there. And there was no doubt that their books were successful. And I spoke to a couple of people and it was, I really, really wrung my hands around this. I wasn't listening to my agent really, but I needed some Black people to give me like, what are your thoughts on this? And they had published a Black woman and she was doing well. And at that time, I was just like, I need to 
you know, get a bigger apartment. We were renting two floors in a brownstone. But I was like, you know what? I don't know. This is my way in. Let me knock this out really quickly. <laughs> I said, let me knock this book out. Fine, whatever, you know. Um, it ended up being a two book deal. I could have pushed for a higher percentage because um, we pushed for a higher percentage. They said, if we're going to give you that, give us two books. But I didn't know any better and neither did my agent. Because there you get a percentage of whatever. And I was always of the mind of, let me knock this out so I could get to my stories. <laughs> Before that, I had already sold a story to another editor. That wasn't my first sale. My first book sale was in 2015 to someone who was asking for a middle grade book featuring a quirky Black girl. And they didn't like what I came up with. So I was ready to just put it aside. I was not trying to write about an awkward Black girl. It would have been fun. But the entire time, I think the gist of what I'm saying is trying to find a way in, into publishing. And it's not as easy as write a book, people love it, and you get published. That's not my story. My story was like, what you want? You know, like, here, I got this, I got this, I got this, what you want? You don't want speculative fiction? You don't want voodoo? I got this. You, you know, so it was a matter of, okay, I got pigeonholed into writing an immigrant story because I am Haitian. Up until that point, this is what editors wanted. It's like, well, why are you writing about aliens? You are Haitian, you know? <laughs> Where's that immigrant story? And here I was with my Haitian book. And I said, I'm going to write this if I can infuse some mythology in there. So in American Street is Papa Legba, which you get the magical realism. I wrote that book in five months. In five months, because I'm ready to be out. Like, let me knock this out and get some what I want. So I cannot say I am proud of what I've written. At the same time, it is a matter of I have spent money on an MFA. I have invested in this dream of mine. How do I make it a career? Because it can be a career. What of myself am I going to sell to get in through the door? And at that time, I did not know that I was entering into a space where it was about police brutality. Those were the books that came out the same year American Street came out. Uh, the Hate You Give, and Dear Martin. However, I truly believe that the people asking for this kind of book knew that's what was coming down the line. You know what I mean? They knew they knew that market was coming and they're like, they want a piece of the pie. And, you know, yes, corporations are made of individuals, but there is always a bottom line. So it's one of those things where this was my personal journey and I made the decision because I have invested so much time. And it was either I have this MFA and continue to work, like I was working part-time or full-time or what have you, or I make decisions to make this my full-time journey. So American Street is about young people in Detroit and it's hood and it's street and it's drugs and it's violence and it's guns and it's shoot 'em up and it's sex and it's drinking. It's all that in a young adult fiction novel. And I cannot say, honestly, it's been seven years. If I had the complete control of my career, I would not be writing about that. 
I would not. And I did it because, you know what? I grew up in New York City in the 90s. You know, I was hood adjacent. But people ate it up. You know? <laughs> what you laughing at, Lori? <laughs> hood adjacent. <laughs> you know, that's just the thing. You can't go outside. You're in the hood. You're in the house. <laughs> well, now I feel bad for telling you I love that book. But. It is very interesting, and I think that that's... Oh, no, 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 no. I love it, too. Because it's a really good book, and the fact that you turned it out in five months also just makes me hate you a little bit, because you could hate write the book like, ah, fine, I'll just get it out. And it turns out to be so beautiful and so wonderful and so moving. It gets nominated for a National Book Award. Jeez, (laughs) sucks to be you. No, but I guess... um, that is not, I did not no, have no. you on the show so I could curse you out. But <laughs> but I, I want to dig into that just a little bit more because I think it's so, so important what you're saying. And I think it's also so interesting because everything you write is so interesting and different. You didn't say like, okay, I had success with American Street. Let me just keep on writing books like that because that's clearly what people want or what will sell. Because you've done a Black Panther book. You've done a novel in verse. You've done an anthology. So talk to me like how you approach approach your career so that it is a career and not just if I can't be this one thing, I'm, I guess I can't write. Talk to me about how you've approached your career. I do say I did write American Street with my heart because I created characters that I fell in love with and I respected them and told the story of Detroit and its history and its people. So it wasn't haphazard because at that point I had already gained the skills to write something well. So once I agreed to do it, I did it. It wasn't so like, it wasn't so much hate writing. It's like, all right, you want hood, I'm gonna give you hood. You know, in terms of just making sure that I do make it the best that I could possibly make it. And I wanted to add that the second book after American Street is Pride. And the story behind that is because American Street was so tragic, I've said, I'm writing a love story. I'm writing a love story, nobody dying. Let me write a happy family. They're good. However, my editor, they wanted a hook. You know, what? what's the hook? You know, and I wasn't coming up with the idea. I'm like, okay, this is a packaging company. You're not getting my ideas. Give me something, but it has to be romance. And they did come up with a Pride and Prejudice retelling. So that's how that happened. And in the process of just like a bunch of books coming out, I came up with the anthology. So my approach to my career is you don't know what you're going to get next because I like to explore. I do not want to pigeonhole myself. If I find something that does really well, guess what? It's not happening again. Thank you. Because my, my motivation is not money or validation. Because I realized in this business, you know, yes, people will love American Street. But if I write a book about a very intelligent Black girl who was self-determined, and while there may be some problems in her family, but at the end, there is no family dysfunction, there is no abuse, there is reconciliation and healing, that's not as popular as my Shoot 'em Up Bang Bang book. And, you know, you saw that trailer for American Friction. It is spot on. That is an old tale for Black people in the entertainment industry. The more stereotypical your content, the more popular you're going to be. 
And if you're right about niche blackness, alternative blackness, people don't know what to do with that because this is not what we're used to. Who are these people? So in that case, I can't be writing the same thing, seeking that sort of validation when your validation is rooted in stereotypes and half-truths about us. So because of that, I'm not going to seek that validation and make sure that I write the stories that I want to tell that young people need to hear. But I am also smart in that if one book I know doesn't do well, you're getting a slightly more commercial book the next time around. (laughs) So I do play that game a little bit where it's not going to be trendy, but I know that a literary slow book that requires deep dive and critical thinking, I'm not going to keep writing those same books. So my next book is faster paced and is a novel in verse and it's speculative fiction. I'm finally writing speculative fiction so that I don't kill my career, so that I still keep eating. So it's a, a daily balance of validating my creative soul or feeding my creative soul and actually feeding my family. And this is where motherhood and Black womanhood and being financially savvy come into place without sacrificing your soul to be a peg in the real. That's actually a perfect segue for my next question. So these next questions that I have are a little bit more practical. You did mention that you have three children, but I did If I did not calculate incorrectly, you have written nine books in six years, I think. It's something around, I mean, the ratio is more than one book a year. So can you tell us a little bit about how you manage your time so that you could do these things? You know, I recently realized, yes, it's nine books in eight years. It was about two years to get published. So I sold my books in 2015. So I've been writing nonstop for eight years now while raising three children, um, high school search. I bought a home. The home buying process is its own kind of beast. Being a partner to my husband, being a daughter, being a sister, being a friend. Those are all real roles that take up time and energy. And I have to say, this is getting real, too. And I believe there are women of color listening. Weight gain was a real thing because there is no time, very little time for self-care. I think in nine years, I gained about 25, 30 pounds from being a writer, from being so uh, sedentary. Octavia Butler talks about that, where her mother wanted to do sit-down work instead of being on her feet because her mother was a domestic worker. And I'm doing sit-down work. I'm sitting all the time and sitting and reading and sitting and writing takes a toll on your health. And the other part of this is the social dynamics of my industry is with a steep learning curve for me and add in social media. It can be a real mind fuck. And I've never really talked about all of this dealing with a mother-in-law with dementia My husband is a black man and art teacher, so he's a high school teacher and he comes with stuff, tries to hold it in and be supportive in that sense. So all of this takes a toll on the body and mind and soul. And, you know, you got to deal with nonsense, too, with the book banning and people having to say something. 
So all of this, there's so many layers to being a Black woman writer where I can't afford to have books spread out that way. I have to constantly be working because I love it. And two, it's become my livelihood. There is no time management. (laughs) It's getting in where you can get in. And there is very little room to breathe because I've designed my life in that way. That's very real. And I hope to continue that conversation within the Read, Write, and Create community because if we don't talk about health care, like taking care of our bodies, particularly as Black and brown women, where we know that we have, you know, a higher sense of chronic illnesses, then we're not doing ourselves any favors. We can't write just because it's a sit-down activity doesn't mean we can write if we are in pain, if we're suffering. So thank you for that transparency. So that's a good segue for this almost last question, which is simply, how do you deal with adversity in your writing career? Rejections, bad reviews, not having the time, you know, or having the to snatch the time from other places and giving up, you know, other opportunities so that you can get the work done. What's your mindset or approach for the hard part of a writer's life? You know, that's a daily struggle. And I don't know if I could call it a struggle. There are some things that are expected. You expect to get bad reviews. You do not know how well your book will perform. But there are surprising things, too. And it's the surprising things that throw me for a loop. And when you don't expect it, when you don't, it's coming out of left field, that's what I consider adversity. Now, in our industry, it's not something where you start a job and everybody's making a base salary, right? We are independent contractors. And when we sell something and we send it out to editors, they're all going to put a different price tag to it. And the price tag is your advance against royalties. Now, everybody, you know, makes the same royalties, maybe 6% or 10% or what have you off the sticker price of the book, but advances vary. So you might get a $10,000 advance and some people get a million dollar advance. The difference is how much your publisher is willing to invest in promoting the book putting it out there, whether they think it's going to be a big book, whether they are investing in you as an author. So that varies. And everybody puts the same amount of love and attention into a book, maybe, you know, relatively speaking. The books that I feel was the hardest to write is not my best-selling book. At the same time, you know, with authors, you have an author putting in their heart and soul into a book and somebody who blinks, you know, and puts out a book their book does better. So as a creative, you can't help but notice those differences. And people will say that, I've heard the saying is that comparison is a thief of joy. However, in this business, it is based on comparison because there's something called comp titles where you're saying, you know, this book is like this book that did well and this book that did well. And it is a competition because people love their year-end lists or the bestseller lists. And it's one of those things that you kind of turn your eye away from. You want to say like, oh, don't compare yourself. But this business is absolutely based on comparisons because 
We are celebrating our lists, our best sellers. You will celebrate yourself if you are a number one New York Times bestselling author, and that goes on everything. And if you are the best-selling author, that means somebody else sold crap, you know? And how do you create community in the midst of all of that competition? I don't know if you can. And people try to, and social media muddies the waters a lot. So that is the adversity in my work, my chosen career path. And it's only because I come from a certain perspective. When I describe the spoken word community to you, it was wholesome. It was communal. It was almost socialist because you got on that stage. You're not getting paid. There is a winner, but that winner, like you get audience applause. You know, you're like, this is undeniable. The audience loves this. I love it too. You win. Nobody's putting marketing dollars behind you to put you up there. The people have spoken. So I come from a very kind of kumbaya space, uh, socialist space. I like to think that I am anti-capitalist while participating, while being forced to participate in it. So in my industry, there absolutely needs to be a community of writers coming together At the same time, you have to be able to talk about, you get more money than I do. (laughs) How do we create an anti-hierarchical community where we know we are not being compensated the same? Well, we know that, yes, we are creating different types of work and the white gaze determines what is going to be successful. How do you come together as Black people when you know these are the elements dictating your career, dictating your success in this business? So all these questions I have, and there are only maybe one or two people that I can really, really have a deep dive with about all these questions, because I believe a lot of us are lost in the sauce. You know, we want that validation. We want that success. And sometimes we really don't interrogate how success and validation are connected to white approval and white gaze. Mm-hmm. I said a lot. <laughs> no, that's really good. And I mean, and you're actually, again, I'm just going to take clips of this interview and use it as the commercial for my community because you're speaking really to the importance of community, particularly for writers of color and particularly above that women writers of color, because we do need each other to support one another and not look at that idea that there can only be one of us who's doing this or who's doing that. And also to understand that if we are speaking transparently with one another, we can make bigger noise and potentially create bigger change so that everybody is treated fairly, if you will. All right. So My last question for you, my last real question is simply, what advice, kind of craft advice, would you give to somebody who wanted to write for young people? Many people think, oh, writing for young people would be easier somehow. People have that assumption. Maybe the books can be shorter or I don't have to do as much work to write a story. What do you think is the secret, if you will, for writing good YA fiction? You know, there is some truth to that where I can't imagine tackling 
adult fiction, literary fiction, and putting out one book out a year. I'm not saying that children's literature is easier, but you are writing from the perspective as a young person. And, you know, in writing about 16-year-old, they just worried about their little school things, you know, little family, and you don't bring a mortgage and tax season into the conversation. Not that you have to do that when writing for adults, but it is singular in its attempt to just move the character along in their relatively simple lives, right? <laughs> relatively, relatively. And not to say that they don't have hard lives. My Nigeria Jones is my latest novel. A character is dealing with her radical separatist family and her mother is gone and she finds out that her mother wanted her to attend a Quaker school. So I uh, make it more complex by adding those elements in there. But if I were to tell the story of the mother, it's a whole different novel that requires some more time and energy to talk about a 30, 40 year old woman who married a black separatist leader <laughs> compared to a 16 year old whose daughter, you know, different story and different headspace. That would be a good book. I actually <laughs> just finished reading Nigeria Jones. I had like a little bit left. I just finished reading it this morning and I was as a 50-something-year-old woman, I was, like, really intrigued by the mother's story. So it's kind of funny you say that because it would be a really good story. Yeah, and it requires a different headspace and different creative space. So, you know, my advice to writers wanting to write for young people is that, no, it is not any easier. At the same time, you have to strip your story down to the bare bones of human emotion. Young people are all about the feels, the feels, the feels. Yes, they can be shorter and they should be shorter because of readers' attention spans right now. But your skill at crafting a concise and clear sentence, concise and clear story has to be top notch. There's the young adult novel, there's the middle grade, and then there is the picture book. Not easy. Yes, shorter. Yes, maybe your storylines are a bit simpler, but it's not easier at a sentence level or at the plot level because it's not easy for me to be my age and constantly have to refer back to being 16 and angsty and horny and just insecure. I got to tap into all those emotions every time I step into the page. Yeah, that's why I think it's always harder. I mean, I'm always in awe of people who write for young people because you do have to step into a time period where even though we've all been children, with wisdom, we forget how silly and foolish we were at, you know, 16, at 15, at 13. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, so I think that disavowing yourself that it's somehow easier is probably the smartest thing to do. So, like I said, I just finished reading Nigeria Jones, and I want you to know that I bought Nigeria Jones in a bookstore in the Netherlands, not even in Amsterdam, but in The Hague. So your words are traveling the world, <laughs> which is exciting, I think. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> so what's next? Are we already working on book number 10? I feel like you probably have book 10, 11, and 12 already planned out. But can you give us a hint to what might be next for you? That's true. Book 10, 11, and 12, and 13 are <laughs> happening at the same time. And they're not all novels. That's the thing to remember. They're not all novels. So my next book is a novel in verse. 
and it is speculative fiction. I am so excited to be entering the world of speculative fiction in my stories. And it's a novel that was my grad thesis back in 2014 that I've revised and turned into a verse novel. And I'm so excited about this one. So it's fun. It's different from my Nigeria Jones audience, maybe. But I'm going to be tackling some heavy topics that young girls face through Caribbean folklore. I am very excited for you because that sounds like all of the different elements to Evie's a boy, the speculative fiction, the Caribbean, the verse, the poetry. <laughs> it's exciting to see that you can now pull together all of these different elements from your past into this new book. So we will keep our eyes open for it. Is there a pub date for it already or not yet? It's been pushed to uh, winter 2025. <laughs> So you probably won't hear anything about it until you probably get a cover, maybe around summer. I'll say for your listeners only, it's called Skin. Real simple, Skin. (laughs) Oh, I love it already. Very exciting. All right. And, you know, depending on when people listen to this episode, you know, it could be right around the corner when they actually, this could be the preview for that book. Awesome. So where can people follow you on social media or is there a website that you like to send people to? Of course, we'll leave all the links in the show notes, but just let people know where they can um, follow your career and or your social media handles. I'm only on Instagram and Facebook. I have an author page on Facebook, Instagram at Boy. My website is ebizaboy.com or evisoboy.net. And soon I am thinking of starting a Substack. I feel like I need something a little more than what social media is offering right now. So I am thinking I did used to write essays. I'm thinking about it, but I don't know if it should be on a platform or on my website. So by the time the listeners hear this, maybe I would have made my decision about that. Awesome. Well, if you do make a decision, let me know, and I'll be certain to promote it throughout the Read, Write, and Create community. Eb, thank you so much for being with me today on the Read, Write, and Create podcast. Thank you so much, Lori. Thank you for having me. Wasn't that a fabulous interview? Evie's a boy is the real deal, and I really appreciated her honesty and candor about her journey in the publishing industry. Here are some key takeaways from our conversation. One, spoken word poetry can be an excellent way to get immediate feedback on the power of your writing. Two, a supportive community is an invaluable resource for a writer trying to make her way in the world. Three, Reach out to your writing heroes. You never know if they might need a ride uptown. And they might be more than happy to offer some wisdom and advice. Four, having a sustainable writing career is, quote, a daily balance of feeding your creative soul versus actually feeding your family. Sometimes you have to take the jobs that just feel like work, and then you follow that up with the work that you love. And number five, Black kids and other kids from marginalized communities need magic in their literature, too. So if that's the kind of writing you want to do, please get it out into the world. I hope my conversation with Evie Zaboy left you inspired and motivated to write. 
I hope you feel a deeper connection and commitment to your own literary projects and practice. Hey, everybody, I just want you to know that this is the last episode of season two of the Read, Write, and Create podcast. I know, I can hardly believe it either. We've had some great episodes. We've had some great guests. And, you know, I remember starting this season thinking about community, and we ended this season by launching a community for BIPOC women writers. Yes, we officially opened the doors to the Read, Write, and Create sanctuary just last week, and it's already popping inside. Thank you, everyone listening who's already applied and joined the sanctuary, and those of you who have supported my efforts to turn it into a reality. If you are a BIPOC woman writer looking for a supportive and active writing community where we support and celebrate BIPOC women writers who want to get published and get paid, then visit the Read, Write, and Create website and click on the Sanctuary tab. And while you're over there at readwriteandcreate.com, check out all of the creative writing inspiration and useful resources for your literary life. You can also sign up for the Read, Write, and Create newsletter, which is the first place where you'll find out about my latest classes and creative offerings. I know we're getting very close to the end of December, but it is still officially holiday slash gift giving season. So make sure you check out the Read, Write, and Create gift guide for BIPOC writers and readers in your life. We have curated an amazing guide with some really unique gifts listed that your reader and writer friends will love. Plus, because I'm always thinking about my writers, the guide is not too long, so you can find a quick gift for that special somebody and then get back to your writing. Bonus, we try to include gifts created by BIPOC-owned businesses. Not everything on there is owned by BIPOC businesses, but many of the gifts are. And there are some extra special coupon codes that members of the Read, Write, Create community can use to get discounts on some of these items. So please check it out. It's on the Read, Write, and Create website, but I will also leave a link in the show notes. Whatever holidays you are celebrating this December, I hope they are merry and bright. I, for one, plan on celebrating the Icelandic holiday tradition of gifting books and sweets to your loved ones on Christmas Eve, followed by an evening reading, eating, and snuggling by a fire. Doesn't that sound like heaven? It is an actual holiday in Iceland. That I cannot speak Icelandic, but the translated name of this holiday is book flood. So yes, I will be celebrating book flood on Christmas Eve, and I hope some of the rest of you will too. Let me know if you do. The Read, Write, and Create podcast is produced by me, Lori L. Tharps. Our editor is Brad Linder, and our theme music is by Wataboy. I'll be back after the holidays and a short break in January. You can expect new episodes of the Read, Write, and Create podcast back in your feed in February. Make sure you are subscribed to the show so you don't miss us when we come back. And if you are thinking about gift giving, I'd love the gift of a rating or a review for the show. Until February, people, keep writing and keep creating.